Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we hang out with Colin Williams, Associate Principal Trombone of the New York Philharmonic. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined as always by the best short rib ragu chef this side of the Mississippi, Nicholas Schwartz. How's it going, Nicholas? Uh, Good now. I I got some accolades for my short rib ragu that I made you last week. Dude, I'm still thinking about it. (laughs) And so, so are the Novas, apparently. I get texts from them. (laughs) <laughs> so now, like, every time Nick visits Pittsburgh, Lindsay Nova, Jim Nova's wife, requires that he cooks pasta. But yeah. no one complains. Yeah, not requests. Requires. Even if I'm not staying with him, apparently, I have to make her pasta. So it's a, it's a task that I enjoy, at least. It's the cross you have to bear. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, we are everywhere. So please subscribe so you'll get a notification whenever we post a podcast. Today, we had an awesome talk with Colin Williams. Colin is a former guest artist at the retreat, and I just love hanging out with him. He's he's one of those people that I always kind of feel like I'm on the same wavelength with. He's just a really introspective person, a real deep thinker. He's, He's really thought about everything he said. And we talk about how he found a new identity through a real huge and unexpected curveball in his life. Yeah, and kind of going along with what he was talking about in in the podcast, he wrote me afterwards and said, "Was everything okay? You know, I want to make sure that we got to all the topics you wanted to get to." He's just he's just very thoughtful, and uh, I just really appreciate being around him. Cool. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Um, we have some news that we're willing to announce, but we are circling the third week of August. We have confirmed a lot of things for the twenty twenty one Third Coast Trombone Retreat. We will have more details soon, so stay tuned to all of our social media and our website. We'll be announcing guest artists, application deadlines, special features, but we're really excited that we're coming back this year. In person. In person. This episode is brought to you by Houghton Horns. I assume all of your instruments after this year are nice and dirty, so send your trombone to Houghton Horns. They're offering 10% off. Early bird special for full cleaning service, including ultrasonic cleaning, minor accessible dents, and general polish for silver instruments. And you can schedule now through May 31st. So fresh and so clean. For more information, visit HoutonHorns.com. You know, Nick likes to to just stick a dryer sheet through his trombone. Mm -hmm. But this actually, you know, ultrasonic actually does a little more. Yeah, I mean, I think the dryer sheet's pretty good, though. Maybe I'll give it a try sometime. Some, like, sixth grader's going to try that now. (laughs) Yep. You too.
too. It's been I haven't seen you in person since I got I guess the retreat. Yeah, God, that that seems like five thousand lifetimes ago. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. For many reasons. Oh, you have the recommended drink. I see. <laughs> it's it's the uh, it's the daytime version of it. I suppose. I ran out of coffee, sadly. Oh, so it's the virgin. It's the, the virgin crown and coke. It is. It is. <laughs> Just trying to get some caffeine in the system. Totally understand. Absolutely. How how early are you usually waking up with the kids? You know, um, lately they've been starting to get up around. Like Christopher's getting up around six thirty. And so that's, that's early for me. I've never really liked, I've never been in like a super daytime, like morning kind of person. So this, this morning, this morning he got up and like, it, it wasn't too bad. I managed to go back to sleep for a little bit and Nikki took him. She was up at like six for some reason. Super mom. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have a good Mother's Day? Yeah, it was very nice. And we had both like Nikki's mom and was visiting. So like they had like their Nana was there in addition to their mom for Mother's Day. So it was nice. And Nikki's birthday was on the 5th, so it's been like a lot of stuff this, this week. Celebrate Nikki month. Mm-hmm. No, I got her one of those cameos where uh, uh, William Frakes wished her a, uh, saying like a happy birthday. Commander Riker. Riker oh birthday for her. <laughs> it was awesome. Is she a big Star Trek person? Mm-hmm. Let's just make this whole interview about Nikki. <laughs> She'll come down Tell later. Tell me about your wife. <laughs> She'll probably come down later with Alex. He's, uh, he's home today. He's got a cold. We had to do this whole thing. Anytime a kid gets a sniffle now, you have to go get him a COVID test. So. Really? God. Yeah. I mean, because if he's going to go back to daycare. Yeah, of course. They got to be sure. And there's no vaccine for the for the real young ones yet. So that's probably going to happen in September. So is that uh, do they have to do the, the nasal swab for the little ones? They have now you can do like a, just an oral swab. Yeah, because I imagine with the little ones, it's with the with the nasal swab. Oh, my oh, God. We had to do that a couple times early on. And it was pretty rough. They get pretty upset by it. So yeah, usually kids get upset by a haircut. I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. sho- shoving something up their nose. <laughs> it's pretty rough, man. <laughs> yeah, that's uh wow. I-, I hadn't thought about that until this moment because I don't mm-hmm. think you know I have two nephews. I don't think they've had to have COVID tests because they were mainly doing remote learning. So yeah. I-, I don't think that they had to. We've been we've been sending the boys to school uh, all year, but that's meant like you know for the older one, it's been like weekly COVID tests. And they do like for the whole school, like staff and everyone, it's like crazy. So, and then with the younger, like the youngest ones, like in the, in the twos programs, basically anytime anyone gets a sniffle, you're out for a week, almost like, and getting COVID tested and that kind of thing. So. Wow. Like they don't even mess around. They kind of don't, you know, you, you can, you can't blame them. And then everything's cohorted. Like, so they, the, 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 there's like no mixing of grades or classrooms or te- like they basically like have everyone walled off. So even if there was someone who got to school with COVID that there wouldn't be like widespread transmission. They really don't allow the groups to interact. So it's really something we're all just figuring out. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So how would you describe your year if you had to, man? I mean, God, I don't even know where to start. I mean, it's, <laughs> the, 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 the pandemic started with like a, you know, a, a, a crazy like orchestra negotiation. And I was the, you know, had to be chair of the committee through this whole thing. We fled New York during that time uh, because we didn't know what was going to happen. We moved in with uh, Nikki's parents who had a large house out in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania. You know, we stayed there for a few months before we came back to New Jersey. And then just trying to figure out how to like, you know, I I lost a couple months at the beginning where I just kind of gave up. I was like, I don't know what's happening. It's all too weird. My practice was terrible, you know, and eventually just trying to figure out, okay, projects, life is moving on. How is it moving on? How do you start interacting with all this stuff? I mean, just like anyone else, I guess we're just trying to get through it, but it was, it was rough. I eventually, it's like, you know, uh, 
social media became sort of a motivator trying to learn how to like work on Instagram and and that kind of thing and and do more of that kind of stuff and find projects and things that I needed to work on that I just really hadn't had the time to do because of of performing schedules and that kind of stuff and just eventually just try to get better and hope for the best you know I don't know if it's it's just a rough year <laughs> for everyone I see, I see you really upgraded your gear at home saw some pictures oh yeah well there's that gear and then if you turn all the way around cuz I I was there Oh, God, it's probably about a month ago now, wasn't it, Colin? Yeah, are you talking about, like, the, the green screen area? Yeah. Colin's giving us a panoramic view of his studio <laughs> right now. Yeah. So I'm seeing, like, new microphones and the ring light that I think everyone owns now. Yeah. Yep. Some, oh, th- that's some cool sound panels. They're supposed to look tacky like mine. Like egg cartons. <laughs> I, c- I like yours, Sebastian. I don't know. Well, thank you. So uh, wh- why those sound panels right there? Is that just started jumping off point, or...? You know, we, we sort of put them up there, and and I'm not sure why we stopped, honestly. We ended up putting up pictures on other things, and then we ended up doing a bigger project upstairs where we soundproofed the entire ceiling. Like, this is an older house, so the ceiling wasn't, like, it was this old, gross, kind of like popcorn ceiling kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we basically put, like, a, a whole new uh, layer of soundproofing material and then, like, another thing of, uh, of drywall up on the ceiling, and, and that ended up being the soundproofing that we needed. And so these were just the beginning of a project that we decided we didn't really need, but now they just look kind of cool, so they're still there. They do. <laughs> and can you and can you now practice like when the kids are sleeping? Yeah, I do that all the time now. Actually, awesome. I usually try to cut myself off by about ten thirty these days. You know, I used to be one of these like two in the morning practicers, and I just you know after everything, I I, I kind of just cut myself off ten thirty eleven at the very latest these days. Well, I mean, if you're waking up at six thirty too, I'm sure that's a little well. Bit yeah, I mean that in. that honestly <laughs> that changes the perspective a lot. I don't want to practice till two and then get up four hours later and be like, you know? <laughs> so, so what's, give me some positives from this experience. Like obviously getting to spend more time with your kids and, and, and your wife, of course, but you know, we've all, we've all faced these similar challenges and I think everyone can kind of identify, but I love hearing about everyone kind of has a unique story about something they, they discovered or something they always wanted to do that they never really got to do or, or improved at or got to think about. Yeah, I mean, for me, the 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 most uh, sort of left turn thing that I got into was I bought uh, once we moved to this house in New Jersey, I bought a smoker and started getting into smoking meats. You know, it's something I've always loved to do when I lived in Atlanta. You know, I, I really sort of discovered it's amazing that I didn't really discover it when I was in San Antonio. Like my last day there, someone took me out to like real Texas barbecue and I was like, this is pretty good. What's, what's <laughs> Maybe <with> I'll this? <laughs> stay. You know, and so when I went to Georgia, I started to find a few uh, barbecue places, and especially when I was living in town, there were two or three just really great places really nearby. And after a while, I was, um, when the pandemic hit and we were moving, I was like, "Well, I got all this time. You know, I've always wanted to do this, so let me look into it." So I started going through this thing: Do I want like a, a pellet smoker? Do I want like a stick uh, burner? Do I want like a, a Kamado? Do I like what do I want to do with this thing? And so I eventually bought like a Kamado and like a bunch of little toys to go with it and just kind of dove right in. So it's been really fun, like learning how to like deal with a brisket or like deal with like ribs, which I'm still trying to improve at. And uh, pulled pork has been like a real great, how easy that is actually is amazing. Like how easy it is to make like an awesome pulled pork. I love that. And that's been, that's been like a a super fun thing for me. And it's also really great for Nikki because she loves ribs. Like that's like her thing, go-to ribs. So, um, I keep trying to get better. I'm like, my last couple have been pretty good. So, but that that's been like the the thing, like the, trying to get more into smoking. Like I said, the time with the family has been amazing. The the time to get to know my in laws a little bit better. I mean, thank thank God they 
like me, you know, because we <laughs> brought the whole family in, you know, and basically tore their house apart for for six months, you know, with this, you know, a, a four year old and a two year old just pulling down everything Ooh. everywhere. It's uh, it's like a their their living room looked basically like a toy pit, you know, basically instead of a ball mm-hmm. pit, it's like you could look down from the upstairs and just look like toys and everything everywhere. But yeah, the family stuff. I, I in a way, I, I think about going back to my schedule before, and I, I don't know that I really want to. Not. Mm. I don't want to be as busy as I was away from the family as much as I was. I think that's something I didn't really think about when I was in it because we just get so fixated on like, do the gig, work, 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 do the gig. Oh, there's this thing, there's this thing, there's this thing, there's this thing. And, you know, I'll see the kids on the weekend. I'll only see them a little bit here and there. And say, I don't know if I want to go back to that. I don't know if I want to go back to that. So how would that, how would that happen for you? How could you, when we do go back to whatever normal is, how do you slow it down? How do you, how do you, keep part of this, this silver lining going forward? I mean, that's just tough. I think that's, that's the whole thing about trying to balance opportunities versus family and trying to really prioritize. And I'm someone who for most of my career, like I would basically like say yes to everything, you know, almost no matter what it was, because it was like, Oh, this person's playing. They're fun. That's gonna be a great time. You know, Oh, they're doing this thing. You know, oh, it's a little busy. Uh, you know, I'm gonna do it. I think it'll be fun. Blah blah blah. You know, and and I just sort of get in this habit. I I I enjoy playing. I enjoy being with people. I enjoy being in a section of people who are really just enthusiastic about music. You know, I I sometimes sit at home and think it's like, wow, you know, I could have uh, I could have gone out and done a lot of things and made a lot of money if it wasn't for this like music addiction. You know, and but it is. It's like this this thing where I just there is something about it that it is just such an incredibly like an experience that that when I'm playing a piece, it's it's weird. It's I get into this time warp. I can I can remember the first time I played like Dvorak Eight. You know, it's like the very first time I ever played anything in uh, in an orchestra, and I can vividly remember because of that. Like you know, the, the rehearsal space for the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, like at the music camp they did in Maine before the season started, and like trying to learn how to learn tenor clef and and like the smell of the cafeteria kind of wafting over or what it was like to just hang out on the hillside. And, and for all of these pieces that I performed a lot of things, I have this amazing, like this, I feel like this access to all of these moments in my life. And it becomes this really sort of transcendental kind of experience. And it's tough to get away from it, you know? So sometimes we can get into this thing where it's very perfunctory work. Oh, we're counting our rest, you know, time to make the donuts kind of thing. But really on the, on the, on the other end of it though, if I really sit back, it, it is something that, that, really kind of goes over the arc of my whole life that is hard to say no to. And yet, when I look at the the fact of, of the fact I need to balance that against my family, my own personal desire to play and to experience this, this sort of deep connection that I have with the music versus this profound love I have for my family, you know, that, that has to take priority. So where does that, how do you balance all of those things? You know, so that's, that's, I guess the, the question I'm going to have to figure out. I'm going to have to really be a little bit more disciplined about like, this is family time. This, these are, this is the time that, I, that I'm just not going to do this, that, or the other, that I'm going to be there and we're going to do these things for my boys. And yet I'm still going to have to carve out the time to do the things I need to do to be able to pursue music making on the level that I would like to pursue it. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like in general, you just have a basic better perspective for your decision making going forward. Like you have a clear idea of what is important to you. And just when the moment arises, when you have to make these decisions, you'll be a little clear headed about what actually makes you the happiest. That's amazing. And that's, you know, I think there's a lot of gifts we can get from this. For sure. I mean, 
I've had two hard restarts in my life in terms as, as, as it relates to my career. Anyway, the first one was the injury that I suffered, like that partial tear um, that that you know basically cost me like a year of of playing in the orchestra, and then many years of, of battling back for that one. And then you know after after uh, Christopher was born, after my 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 firstborn, you know it, it is this sort of two hard restarts. You have to like really reevaluate what what's going on and what is important to you. Well, you could argue this is a third hard restart in a way, you know, going through oh, a pandemic, yeah. <laughs> but we're all yeah. going through that restart. There's a, a camaraderie over this one. <laughs> that's true. At least, at least this one is, is widely shared, you know? So then I think that's, what's interesting is like trying to figure out what people have been doing to, to get through it. You know, like what, what has become valuable to you coming out on the other side of this one? You know, if, if I look back at it from some of the, my other hard restarts, some of the same lessons still applied, you really find out who your friends are. Like you really find out who the who are the people who are hanging out with you and like really just want to want to hang out with you because of you and who are the people that you just kind of you know, bump into at work and that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. But I, I, it is very like you get a laser focus on like who's really in your life, you know, and who's really part of your life in that way, you know. And and it's been amazing to me that the people that I've met over the years, even from the very first injury, who I was friends with then, they have been very consistent through all of these really crazy transitions they're always there you know it's it's very interesting like if you look at it holistically yeah the true colors come out right yeah absolutely and those are the people that i mean you get a clear idea and you're like that's going to be my friend for life because they were they were there yeah like this guy in the bottom of the screen yeah, I'm, on, so, I'm on the side of the screen in my <laughs> well, you're, you're on the screen um so speaking about the arc of your life as you so eloquently mentioned We'd like to, you know, cover that a little bit if you'd indulge us. So are you from Massachusetts or, or am I totally wrong? No, no. Massachusetts is where I grew up. I, I, um, I was born in Maryland, but don't remember anything about it because basically by the time I was, you know, one or two or something like that, we were living uh, outside of Detroit in Michigan, oh. uh, actually very close to where George Curran lived. We found out that our childhood homes were about four and a half miles away from each other. Wait, what town were you in? Because I grew up right near George as well. Uh, Lathrop Village. I'm from around there. I have no idea where that. I have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. Look, look it up. Uh, uh, it's uh, San Diego Drive in uh, uh, Lathrop Village. Oh, you're near I, like I, Southfield. Okay, Royal Oak. Yeah, that's about 15 miles from where I grew up. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was there through kindergarten, and then, but for, yeah, for most of my life, I was in uh, Massachusetts. But yeah, so so my whole musical experience is all around Boston Symphony stuff when I was growing up. You know, my my first uh, real serious teacher was uh, Doug Wright, who was playing the Empire Brass in the uh, at the time, and he left uh, the area right when I graduated from high school in 1995. Is when he went out to start in the Minnesota Orchestra. So we kind of I was lucky to have access to him. I took lessons, some lessons with Norman Bolter. I did like the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra stuff, and from there I went to Manhattan School of Music for two years, studied with Dave Finlayson. And then two years with Joe over at Juilliard after that. And that's when I left to go to the San Antonio Symphony. Three years you're there. Just, you're just brushing through all this stuff. I'm banging all these through, big, man. Banging through. These then, big we'll, life then, we'll, experiences. then we'll find out what's interesting after that. You know. <laughs> well, didn't you? I think I heard, did, didn't Jim say the other day that, were you guys like in youth orchestra together with Jim Nova? He preceded me by a little bit, but we had a little bit of overlap in this group called YPO, the Youth Philharmonic Orchestra. Over any that's like the NEC based one, whereas Gypso was a Boston University based. And he came in, I remember one time when I was in the trombone section, and he was filling in. 
by reading the French horn parts in F, you know, and I'm like, who's that trombone guy over there doing all that stuff? Why is that you so know? fitting? I, I don't know. get confused sometimes. I Maybe he didn't notice. Did he have I a soprano I, trombone? I think he was dating one of the horn players or something. So he came in to so do this thing. Nothing changes, apparently. For <laughs> it is documented that he likes horn players. Yeah. <laughs> but um, from there, we kind of got talking. And eventually, this is where we started playing in that Nova Quartet. You know, this, we used to, when I was in high school, I would drive down to Jim's place. And there were four of us. And we would get together in this like high school gym. And that's where I played trombone quartets for the first time you know um and his father would really was uh he humored us very well he uh he let us play outside of his pizza place so we had like this nova quartet like uh shirts and stuff and you know it was very it was a very cool experience because i had never heard the trombone quartet before i didn't know anything about that and we're playing in this big space and and i had just heard like four of a kind and then all of a sudden we're reading the same wc trois chanson uh, arrangement and I'm just like, whoa, man, this is like blowing my mind that, that this kind of sound can be made with the trombone. And, it, and so that I actually consider to be a real pivotal kind of, of experience for me was just going down and playing in a gym, you know, with Jim Nova. Did you get free pizza out of it? I'm pretty sure we got free pizza. Anytime I was down there, they fed, they fed us. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I never put together in my head um, that I knew, of course, that you studied with Joe. I didn't realize, I guess I didn't realize you studied with, with David as well. Mm hmm. So, I mean, I want to get into this that I don't want to go too much out of line, but you sit in a section with two of your teachers. Mm -hmm. That's got to be an amazing experience. It's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, when I really look back at, at, at the, the likelihood that something like that could happen, I mean, the chances are so infinitesimally small. It's like, how could you ever end up in that situation? And it, it, it's, it's interesting because I remember like, first meeting them like when i was like a high school kid when i was just like you know just there's someone that they never even knew that they would see again just taking like a one-off lesson or something like that you know and that sort of side of them then studying with them regularly and that side of them and then just sort of a colleague out in general that's sort of like keeping in touch every so often um and then coming back to working all the time together and what's really cool about it is is the fact that they have we we laugh a little bit about, you know, the fact that I study with them sometimes. We'll we'll recall some memories or we'll give each other a little bit of a hard time about that. But not once has there ever been even a hint of like the teacher student kind of thing. When they brought when they brought me to the orchestra, they were it's always been collegial to the nth degree, you know, and, and for some relationships, you know, it's it's always your teacher is your teacher, you know. It's hard to get away from that. You know, but with them I've never really felt that kind of thing where they've tried to use that in any kind of negative way we've always just had a really great working relationship you know and There's that's no like first year hazing where they make you like clean their trombones or something i mean the first year of hazing was like all right you now that you're here you got to buy a bass trombone and you got until you know february to be able to like sit on stage with the philharmonic and like not wreck the section you know and sound terrible so the the hazing all came for me in, in the form of of having to learn that uh, damn instrument, you know, and I spent a lot of time in that practice room just like going, this kind of thing, just like trying to learn the bass trombone sound. That's a, that's a good uh, that's a good imitation of a bass trombone. <laughs> it's my bass trombone playing, that's for sure. It's been it's been great. I mean, I don't I don't know. It, it is it is an amazing. If I really take a step back and I look at the fact that I'm in a section. With Joe and David, two uh, teachers, uh, you know, amazing players with these incredible careers. One of my best friends, you know, 
George, you know, playing bass trombone, one of my other very best friends, Chris Martin, playing principal trumpet. I mean, it, this never happens, you know, where, and Richard Dean, who's playing uh, the acting principal horn, you know, we've played years together in Atlanta and then almost at the exact same time came to New York. This kind of stuff never happens. It's a, it's a really kind of, I don't take it for granted, you know, that, that it's an unusually great setup in that way, that there's a lot of really great people to, to also get to make great music with. I wish I had some stories like, you know, someone hung a dead fish over my locker and I couldn't find it for four weeks or something like that. But no, it's been no hazing. Just just generally very pleasant. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. I mean, you, well, you were already established so well when you came in. I mean, that definitely helps. But I, I'll be honest. I mean, I was worried when I came in if I was going, even though I had you know been offered the job, you know, I was also someone who's coming off of at that time an injury where I, I felt like maybe damaged goods, you know, and in a sense, I was surprised they were willing to take a chance on me. That was what was going through my mind. You know, uh, I, they're not that kind of group. They're not going to just, you know, uh, give you a job because that's not, that's not how they, they work. But that's sort of my own inner self-talk is it has been like trying to figure out what do I actually, you know, do people just look at me as this you know, salvaged wreck that, that like, you know, it's the wounded animal that they're like, Oh, that's SS Williams. Exactly. You know, or, or do people forget about it? And as time goes by, less and less people are even aware that anything happened. So it's, it's a, it's a funny thing that the, the sort of personal, um, uh, demons that we carry around with us, right? Like we all have our things. And that, that's something that when I first got there, I, I definitely had the, a lot of imposter syndrome going on, you know? I, I definitely want to get into the, the injury if you're willing to go there. But before, sure. before we go there, uh, just to touch on what you just said, you know, from the outside, you certainly don't sound like damaged goods and I'm not just <laughs> trying to blow smoke up your ass. This is the truth. And so, I mean, I understand what's the internal versus the external, but you know, maybe I think it's kind of like when athletes get injured, it's, you know, of course there's a part that's like, well, they got injured, but it's not about the injury. It's about how they recover from the injury and their performance afterwards. And so many athletes just like us are able to recover and be just as good, if not better afterwards, because they learn how to use their body better, you know? And so they avoid that injury going forward. And it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like just talking to you one to one-on-one or in different scenarios where you've come to the retreat and talk to students. It sounds like that injury was a wake up call for you as well. And I'd like to hear about kind of what happened and how you came through it both physically and mentally. I mean, it, yeah, like a wake-up call, right? I mean, uh, I, I was an obsessive practicer, you know, where uh, it wasn't very smart the way that I used to do things. It was just a lot of volume. And I would go through these phases where I would practice hours and I'd go off and play like a symphony concert that night. For a long time, I was strong enough to do it. Boy, when I look back at how many hours I practiced, I was like, wow, I, <laughs> I wish I had some more focus while I was doing it instead of just sort of like adding on, uh, you know, etude after etude, just with no particular goal in mind kind of thing. So coming out of that, I mean, there's two things that I, when I, after the injury, I mean, I, I just literally couldn't practice that much anymore. I just had such diminished strength um, and discomfort. So I had to become much more sort of mindful about how I practiced and what I practiced. And that, that's really benefited me, I think, all the way through to today. You know, having uh, kids kind of, you don't have this sort of uh, carte blanche on your time anymore in terms of you can do whatever you want. You got to be much more efficient about what you do and, and how you do it. And I think that had I not gone through that, that moment of like, you know, trying to figure out how to bring myself back, I certainly would not be as good 
and being efficient with my time as I am now with the kids. But the thing about the athletes too, is that we're so accustomed to seeing athletes get injured and come back. And then, you know, they talk about it and, and you look at their performance and the, the statistics speak for themselves. If someone has truly recovered, I don't know that we've totally gone there as a community in musicians where we look at people who have had injuries and then like, don't think about it anymore. Like, I think there's still a tendency to be like, oh yeah, that happened to that person, you know? And, and you don't, you don't trust them as much anymore. You don't trust do you, them to be there. Do you feel like you're experiencing that? I don't feel like I am now. I, I feel like I did when I first came back. There is a teacher who I will not name who used to send students to start, take lessons with me to report back on how I was doing, like whether I could still play. You know, um, there was weird stuff like, and that that made me very uh, unsettled. Yeah, obviously. no kidding. That's That's so unprofessional why yeah. what's the point yeah exactly for what to what end you know uh see if there's gonna be an opening in the atlanta symphony i don't know Ugh. um Gross. It, it, it's it's weird and you know, i can also remember too that like you know at the time we had some of the very first recordings of it wasn't sts yet but we were trying to do some stuff in atlanta and put it up on youtube and i can remember reading in the comments like i heard colin williams has dystonia and, and this that and the other and uh I remember getting in there. It's like, no, I don't have dystonia. And this was like BSing at the time, but like, but no, it's just, it's a facial injury. And, you know, I just need some time to recuperate and and I'll be back. Good as new, blah, blah, blah. If I only knew at that point, like how long the journey would be, I just ignored everything, but it gave me. um, And then when I came back to play in the orchestra, you know, people would be like treating a little bit with kids gloves kind of thing. So I never felt, felt totally initially um, confident. Like my head game as a result of that, like you always like I've always been someone who has has like a lot of mental chatter that I for a while was very able to overcome. Coming back from this was just like in addition to my physical game just falling apart, my mental game fell fell apart even harder. I mean, way harder. I mean, so to the point where even when I took my first audition back uh, after a long many years away and having come back from an injury and that kind of thing, it was like a high school all-state audition level of nerves of just not knowing what's going on, complete dysfunction, complete fail of just like all of the, the dry mouth, the nerves, the, the head going everywhere, the shakies, like all that stuff. And that was a wake up call too. It's like, Oh my God, in the middle of all this, I'm trying to put, trying to put my plane back together. My head game is a wreck and I've done nothing for it. And going through that experience, is it when you, you mentioned you know, the, the colleagues kind of treating you with, with soft gloves and going through that experience, does it kind of illuminate how much of your self confidence, self worth, belief in oneself is actually being fueled by others and how much is fueled by you and kind of has to remind you that the only true source where it's actually should be coming from? Yeah, because because I, 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 want, I don't want to put a negative connotation on them the sort of handling me with kids' gloves because it was done out of respect and affection. And I don't have any doubt about that for my colleagues in Atlanta who were doing it at the time. But for me, because as you say, Sebastian, it's like because my own self-worth was so low at that time, I interpreted that as not like supportive. Hey, we're cheering you on. We're here for you. You're doing great. But I decided to internalize that as like, oh, they're just lying to me. They're bullshitting me. It's like, they have to be hearing what I'm hearing. This is a joke. I'm a joke. All that kind of stuff goes in there. All that imposter syndrome, super negativity 
would would go into those kinds of decisions. So so yeah, you're saying it's like someone could come up to you with literally the most pure and most earnest and authentic, like, you sound great. You really made a difference for me tonight. But if you're not able to like talk to yourself in a positive way or have like a, a, a positive like inner game, then that will actually even be perceived as a negative or pandering kind of statement. And that's a rough world to live in. As someone who's lived in that world, that is a rough world to live in where you are incapable of of honestly receiving uh, people's well wishes or their gratitude for your artistry. That is tough, you know, and, and that's something that if, if I think if you ever find yourself in that situation, that that is a sign that you need to take a step back and really start examining, you know, your headspace and and whether it's just trombone related or it could be more life related, you know, who knows, but that. That is an exhausting, tough, tough place to live and an unhappy place to live. And, mm-hmm. and if I look at this experience out of anything that has come out of it that has been positive after going through this injury has been a recognition of, of that, that that headspace has to be better. Whereas before I used to identify completely my entire self-worth was wrapped up in this instrument. And like the last note that I played basically told me of like at the end of a concert, like if that concert went poorly, then for the rest of that night, I was a piece of crap. You know, and the next morning, try to get up and try to not be a piece of crap and play better. You know, there's like a terribly self-destructive mindset. And I've seen a lot of people who have gone down that road, too. And if anything, going through an injury and the way that I did, you can't think like that because it's literally becomes hopeless. You know, I had to find a, a way out of it. And, and you know, fortunately, Nikki came into my life right around that time and was really, really helpful and to me for me to think through things differently and to recognize what was going on in my head and to try to try to be more kind to myself and to, to, you know, respect what I was doing a little bit more. And, and that really began the, began the journey of, of getting away from being completely consumed uh, by the instrument as the primary driver for who I was versus actually having a person in there that was, worthy of being cared about and was worthy of respect and compassion and whatever, you know. It's amazing the terrible things we can say to each other, right? Like people, you know, you talk about people being mean on YouTube and, you know, social media, but compared to the things sometimes that we say to ourselves, it's it's unbelievable, right? And it's so much more powerful when it's ourselves saying it because it's what we believe. Yeah. That negative self-talk, I mean, it would take like a I think only like a pathological narcissist is capable of engaging with people in that way and being that mean the way that we are to ourselves, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a, God, there's a lot we could say about this, but one thing I think about is that this sort of self-talk, this really negative space that we can live in can go on for a long time without even being recognized. It becomes normal. And I read, I don't know if you know what cognitive behavioral therapy is, the person who invented it actually from Pennsylvania, I think at, uh, I think at Penn, I think he taught at Penn, but he was a uh, practicing uh, psychologist. And one of his techniques for recognizing cyclical negative thoughts was to either have like a counter, like what something that you might see at like an amusement park that you just press a button, each time you press it, it adds one number or to have, you don't have to keep the exact number, but to have like a, a rubber band around your wrist. And every time you find yourself, having these negative thoughts, you snap it on your wrist a little bit. It just, just is like, uh, it depends on your, how your mind works. Some people are better with fit, the actual numbers, a physical thing. And then pe- other people are better with that little snap on the wrist. And 
I tried this once when I was preparing for a recital. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how many times, even if it was a little thing like, ah, quit screwing that up. Something that's really not the worst thing to say, but it's not helpful, you know? <laughs> and I was, uh, it was unbelievable by the end of the day. It was just like all the time, snap, 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 snap on my wrist, you know? <laughs> and I was just, I was, uh, I, I, when I went into that experiment, I thought like I was pretty good actually. I was like, oh, it's, it's not that bad. And then I realized, holy crap, I got to work on this. This is not helpful, you know? And I think if, if everyone did some version of the experiment, they'd find that they'd probably live in that headspace a, a little too much for comfort. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it is tough and it, it is debilitating. I think as an artist, if, if, if it really can, you allow it to consume you like that, because, you know, to do what we do, it takes a certain amount of believing that you have something to offer. Like if you're going to really like stand up, step up on that stage and own that space and say something, you know, you've got to be confident it, it or it, you don't have to be, but it really makes the experience a lot more joyful if you believe in what you say. You know, and all of this, this negative feedback, I think it takes away from our ability to believe in what we're doing up there. And that makes performing much more difficult, you know? Absolutely. And it makes me think about, you know, I, I love sports psychology and it's, I mean, it's obviously so related to any sports psychology book you read. And I was reading about Russell Wilson, the quarterback of the, the Seattle Seahawks has like a personal psychology coach, I guess you could call it that he talks to before every game. And his whole thing is because you hear people all the time being like, oh, don't think negative, think positive, think positive. And if it was that easy, I think everyone would be able to do it. And it actually sometimes when you when you tell people that it actually makes them more depressed because they feel like, oh, I'm not thinking positive enough or it's difficult for them. And what actually has worked for them and what they've discovered is it's about instead of forcing yourself to think positive, it's trying to think less negative, trying to. The, like those those rubber band thoughts, just try to eliminate those or stop those more quickly. And I, I started that as an exercise before, you know, some recitals. And it was it was I found myself excited to play. Like all those all those fears went away. But I'm really fascinated about this concept of identity. And I feel like you had, and you know, we could call it a gift of of going through an experience where, you know, for most people Everyone has some sort of sense of self-worth tied to something. It's some things that are better than others. And you actually had the experience where that was taken away. And you actually had to see what it felt like for this thing that gave you so much confidence. It gave you financial stability. It gave you a life. It gave you respect. It gave you, you know, all these things. It gave you an artistic outlet. It was gone. And since your identity was so tied in it, it's like, who the fuck am I right now? You know? But by going through that, I'm fascinated and I'd be curious to ask you, like, how much stronger does that make you? How much better of a player does it make you when you're not dependent on that? Yeah, you know, God, I can remember like acutely, like when I really realized that this was going to take longer and I was looking at my first stretch of like four months off of like before the doctor was going to say it was OK to come back and play. I remember just sort of sitting on my couch that night and it's like it was like 1.30 in the morning and like I was trying to play video games to distract myself or something. And I remember just sort of looking up at the ceiling and, and like kind of laying back on the couch and being like, everything around me is there because I play trombone. And I don't know if I can do that again. I'm The trombone was in the corner and I was kind of looking at it as like, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to play again in a way that will give me this everything that I have around me, the food in the fridge, the roof over my head, the car in the garage, the food for the pets, 
all this kind of stuff. And I had this like absolute freak out moment where that's where I really started to, to feel like this anxiety, just like constant, just like, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a, like a ringing in my, in my head, just the whole time, this high energy anxiety couldn't sleep for months as a result of that. So like coming out of that, eventually on the other side of it, looking at it, do, do I, am I stronger as a performer? I, I don't know if I'm stronger as straight up as a performer, but I do know that as a colleague, as someone who appreciates art, as someone who looks at teaching, that I am definitely a better colleague teacher and someone who appreciates the effort goes into to, to making art in a totally different level. You know, I, I think that my empathy for everyone in life went up about 10 degrees, you know, you know, but for through that experience, because it was I mean, let's say I, I had had a pretty, pretty easy go of things up to up to that point. Not to say there, there weren't struggles that I had, but this was the first real crisis for, for me. And and it was a big one, you know, one an existential one in a sense in terms of what am I going to do with my life? And I think that that's made me. At least I hope that it's made me a, a, a better teacher and a better colleague and just a better person to be around. I feel that I'm, I'm a more empathetic person. And in that sense, I think that when I play in, in an orchestra or in a section or something like that, I tend not to get my like, you know, my like, here we go. Like the, the ego thing gets up and we're all like trying to, you know, vibe each other. Kind of, We've all been in sections that have been like that. And that's exhausting. Uh, I just, I don't do that anymore. I, I don't know. Maybe people are more comfortable to play with me because I'm like, you know, yeah, I like to play, but I, I generally don't approach it like a competition anymore because I know I'll lose. <laughs> and, and I'm okay. I don't need to compete. I just need to be who I am. And just, this is what I have to offer. You know, by the time I get into a competition mode at this point in my life, it's no, it's not going to go anywhere good. No one feels good after it. I just, I just want to bring what I can and hopefully people will still like it, you know, and that, that in a, in a funny way is an empowering kind of thing is to just be comfortable with who you are and bring what you bring and, you know, just be proud of, of what you did and whatever follows, follows. Yeah. Maybe a better performer isn't the most accurate way to put it, but more resilient performer might be the better way of putting it. Just, I think definitely yeah. more resilient. That's a good. That's a good way of saying it, Nick. Because because I'm more forgiving of myself, you know, for mistakes. I don't like to make them. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I don't. I don't sit there and if I have a big moment that doesn't go well, I'm not like, oh shucks, too bad, you know. Like no, it's it, it still pisses me off. I still get bummed out. But I used to really crater out over that stuff because that was it. That was all I. That's really at that point in my life. That was like all I had. You know. Yeah, and that's that sounds like a good balance because it's like you don't want to totally lose that edge where you care when things don't go like you want but you don't want to be so self-consumed where it's gonna ruin everything yeah and and i think that's really one of the things that we have to uh, if you're like an orchestral performer or something like that i think that's just one of the things facts of life you're gonna have to accept that some performances aren't gonna go very well and you're gonna feel like shit about it but you know the question is you feel shit bad about the performance you know or do you feel bad about yourself as a person and I used to get those two conflated all the time. And now I can have a I can have a night where I'll come home and I'll be pretty bummed, you know. But I don't go to bed thinking like, you piece of shit. I can't believe you did that. You're an idiot. No one's gonna, you know, no one's gonna call you again. You suck. You know, those kinds of like, you know, negative self-talk ideations that that will creep in there. Those those don't really happen anymore. That's amazing. So you've been able to separate yourself from 
this trombonist a little bit like i'm colin williams i play the trombone i am not colin williams the trombonist in a way if that makes sense yeah it, it does i'm not always 100 percent successful but i'm so much more than i used to be you know because it used to get really rough they used to they used to say sometimes around the aso it's like oh there's dark colin because something had gone oh, bad no. and they knew that afterwards i was going to be super bummed out because i would i would just have this look on my face like oh you know and like or i wouldn't talk to anyone because i was so just like boiling you know and and that that kind of thing doesn't really happen yeah i i remember when i was in school i went i was in school with a a good friend kirk ferguson and i don't think he'd mind me telling telling this story when he was in school he was so like what you're talking about and it would get to the point where you were in a quartet and if you missed a note he'd like knock over a music stand and stuff like that and get really mad and now he's the complete opposite he's like into meditation into I think he's a Zen Buddhist or something like that. Yeah. And I and I feel like maybe on a smaller level, this is something that everyone going through the pandemic can identify as far as professional musicians that have tied their identity to their jobs and it being taken away. I mean, and Nick and I have talked about this a lot and how it's felt and, and how we've dealt with it. But I think that is that is kind of a silver lining if it forces you, you know, even though it sucks, if it forces you to kind of see what's important. I mean, that's, I think that's the only thing we can really do. I mean, because otherwise, if you look at this thing as, is an experience that only provided a negative outlet, then the experience wasn't worth anything. It was just misery. When it is possible to pull something from it that will benefit you in the future, you know? And the thing is, is, is you don't want to, you know, you can't tell someone that their experience is not valid with this pandemic. But I hope that for people who have had a hard time, that when things are back to normal and they can look at this sort of retrospectively, you can still learn those lessons. You can still look at, at how, you know, uh, how you went through the pandemic and and still learn something from it later on, even if that it was the height of suffering. Because I, if someone had told me this stuff in the middle of my really rough time with my injury... I wouldn't have been receptive to it. And yet looking back at it, I still took a lot from it. So I think for anyone who's really going through that right now and doesn't want to hear someone say, you know, take a positive lesson from it. You don't have to right now. You don't have to right now. But I hope that in the future that you will take the time, you know, the, to, to look back and see what you did learn through this. Because I guarantee you that that almost everyone is going to have something positive that they will take from this experience, you know, something they learned that will will benefit them in the future. I mean, even if it's not something learned, but the ability to spend more time with people that you love, I mean, that's, for me, that's been the number one thing is being able to spend more time with family. Yeah. And friends last week. And friends. I mean, I saw Sebastian. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we jumped into, to, you know, some, some heavy things and I would love to just go back just a little bit and kind of walk through your career. So coming out of school and, you know. We can talk about your your experience with you know your teachers and everything, but you, you went to the what's turning into the official like pathway orchestra. It seems like it's so many great players passed through the San Antonio Symphony at some point and and still are. How was that experience? Was that one of your first auditions? Were, were you still in school when you took that audition? Or? I, I was still in school when I took that audition. Um, that was maybe my second or third audition, something like that. Maybe fourth. I, I don't know. I didn't take a ton of auditions before San Antonio. That's for sure. And I mean, I was so ridiculously green. That is like, I'm, it's, it's shocking when I look back at like how little I knew when I started that job. Like I was looking at this whole thing. I have to play first trombone on all of this stuff. Like three, <laughs> we, three weeks in a row. I'm That's playing all the high first notes. trombone. 
that's a little crazy, you know, like, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I know it's, it, I was such a child. I was such a child. It is, it's like a really shocking to me that I was there at all. And I can actually remember that, um, what is it? The, uh, the, uh, the pops tune. It's like a Leroy Anderson Christmas festival or something like that. All the time with trombone. And at the end, there's like a trombone melody, but it's like in one all of a sudden. And I can remember this really, like, because Steve Lang and I were there for the first time. We didn't know anything about pop shows. We'd only played our first pop shows ever, like, two or three, you know, like a month or two before this. And we're just, like, playing along. We think we know what's going on. And we're playing so loud, and we're, like, so into it. And we're, like, a bar off and twice as slow, and the whole orchestra just sort of stops, and everyone's laughing. I'm like, oh, my God, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) And I I remember that moment. I went home later that night, and even though I was young, I was like, wow, I, I, I don't know. I don't know this music very well. I need to learn some more. <laughs> <laughs> Every time we play a Leroy Anderson tune in one of the groups I play in, I, I lean over to Hakeem Bilal and I'm like, Leroy! You <laughs> 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 get some every single time. God, Classic. Leroy. Classic. <laughs> same, same person, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Leroy Anderson, Leroy Jenkins, same person. <laughs> so, who, who, are you, who are you playing with uh, in San Antonio at that time? My first year was uh, Steve Lang. Steve and I both got jobs at the same time, actually. We both uh, went into the symphony at the same time together. He left after a year to go to St. Louis. And Steve Dumain was still playing uh, like a, a year-long tuba position at the time because I think Lee wow. Hip was up in uh, Utah Symphony. So my first, uh, one of my very favorite memories from that whole time, actually, was playing Ben-Hur with that section, oh, like doing that cool. whole thing. And I actually have a mini disc of it somewhere <laughs> of, of like a totally illicit, you know, mini disc in the audience kind of recording. Uh, you should um, probably explain for our younger listeners, anyone <laughs> under the age of 30, <laughs> what a mini disc is. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, oh, my God. Wait a minute. I might even have one somewhere around here. Um, they but were yet, so great when they came out. Oh, oh my, they were amazing. They were the most, they're the pinnacle of technology. But if you can imagine like a tiny little, like quarter size CD trapped inside a plastic box that you put into a machine, that was basically your mini disc, what that looked like. We're getting on the edge of having to describe what a CD is too. <laughs> I know, I know. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Oh, where is that? I wish I had that mini disc so I could just we, pull it out. We have, we have hundreds of mini discs and no mini disc player. So I don't know why we hold on to them, but. Send it to one of those services where they put it all on a hard drive for you. I don't know if I need to hear my, you know, lesson when I was 16 years old. I don't know. But it, it might <laughs> be interesting. Does. Yeah. But I do. <laughs> That's cool. I still remember the sound those those things make when you turn them on. Like that little spinny sound. Yeah. 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 Re- reading the reading the CD, little CD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Man, so it sounds like a kick-ass player. That was great. That was a great uh, section. And the next year after Steve Lang, uh, Steve Lang left is when Nathan Zagans came in. He played second during that year. So <laughs> it's a great story here. <laughs> Uh-oh. So um, uh, Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances, you know, it's mm-hmm. like starts off like second second movement uh, is like, you know, big muted thing with the whole brass section. Right. And like I'm trying to now now that I've got all this experience of being there for a year and Nathan's there, I'm like, okay, like, you know, we're gonna be real serious now. I'm gonna try to be like professional. And, you know, um, I can't remember what it was, but like Nathan was like falling asleep or something on stage, like during one of the the rests or that kind of thing, you know, and <laughs> I because I'm such an idiot. I thought, Nathan, man, we gotta be serious, gotta be professional. You got you can't do that. You know, we have a responsibility here. We have to take everything like really seriously. Come on, man. We gotta grow up. We gotta grow up, Nathan. 
grow up. Take it, take it, take it responsible. Be serious. You know, can't make those kinds of mistakes anymore. And it was, I mean, it was a total dickish thing to do, but I, you know, I was, like I said, I was 23 and stupid. So, but the beautiful thing is though, is that how karmic the whole experience was because that night we're sitting there and after this whole thing about be professional, you know, get your act together kind of thing, we end the first movement and we were about to start the second movement for this thing. And I looked down, no, my frick, my freaking mute is not there. And so I like lean over to Nathan and I'm like, have to put my hand out and he just looks at me. And he hands me the mute, and no word, no further words needed to be said. <laughs> Put the mute in, play. Felt like the biggest asshole of all time. <laughs> he still gives me shit about it, as he should, a hundred percent. But when I look, when I look at like one of those reasons not to be that kind of asshole, I always look back at that experience too. It's like you know, you say this kind of stuff, but you're gonna be that guy at some yeah. point. So was it that you forgot the mute and he noticed and went and got yours or did he play? There was no time. It was, it was a concert. There was no time. So I noticed that the mute was missing and I looked down at his mute and we basically knew because I was on the lead voice, it would be easier to hide with him in the middle. So he handed me his mute. I see. I misunderstood. I thought, I thought he had your mute in, in, in addition to his own and was giving you. No, 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 no. Like I totally forgot my mute a hundred percent in that, that very professional kind of way. So after this whole degree of the thing about professionalism, I'm the one who like leaves my freaking mute off stage, you know, for the gig and has to ask him who I just was an asshole to, to, to borrow the mute. So, well, there's a, there's a, <laughs> in the, in the, in the Met opera turned up parts in the second act, it says, don't forget your mute in the bass drum part. And then it says in huge letters, this is for you, Nick, because so many performances, because the first act there's no mute. And then there's mutes for, for the second and third act. In so many like performances, I'd have to run out and go get my mutes. I'd forget it. And so eventually, uh, I think I think Weston wrote that in my part for Nick. That's funny. Yeah. Whoopsies. It's hard. It's hard, it's hard to be like a hard ass because it's like you gotta be able to back it up like one hundred percent all the and time. No one can. No one can. No, it's it gets exhausting. You know, that's just a, it's a that's a tough way to live, and no one no one wants to be your colleague if you're gonna be that way anyway. So. Why, why do it? Well, it's fascinating hearing this story because like every section you've gone to, you've brought colleagues along with you. I mean, not like that you brought them, but you got to play with Nathan in Atlanta, right? So like, and then, and now you're in, in the Philharmonic and, and George is there with you too. It's like, it's kind of yeah, rare. Really, really crazy, you know, looking at it uh, from George's perspective, because Nathan was one of the finalists for that Philharmonic job too. So George had just left Atlanta with the section of me and Nathan. And then he, even though he was, Still too new in the orchestra to be voting, but he had to play in the section round. So he's doing this section round with his like two former colleagues. I, I always wondered what that was like for him to like to to sit through that and how weird that whole experience must have been. Probably nerve wracking because you, I'm you know, sure you're I'm both sure. friends. Yeah, I know. I've always said uh, I actually in a, in a way not totally, but in a way I get more nervous sitting on the committee than I do playing because I just feel like. I, I know what it's like to be one of those people. And it's just like, you, you want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And it's just, you feel like, ah, oh, this is so uncomfortable. I don't like mm-hmm. this. I want everyone to be gainfully employed. You know? Yep. And you, that's obviously that's just not empathy. the way our, our yep. world works. You get a job and you get a job. <laughs> Thanks. Oprah. We're start our own trombone group. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I don't know who, <laughs> I don't know how we're making money doing it. But let's do it. <laughs> So Atlanta was was the the big audition after. So you were in in San Antonio for about 
three years? Three years. Yep. And then Atlanta came along and how do you still remember the whole preparation process? And I, I do, you know, um, I mean, I was practicing all the time over at, at San Antonio. I remember I would, after, after, if I just played the first half of a concert, I would always stay in uh, afterwards and be practicing in the spaces there, like in some of the locker rooms or something underneath the hall. I would, at the time I could, because I had an apartment, I, I couldn't practice late there. So I used to go over to UTSA and I would drag with me like this giant suitcase, basically of CDs and like a uh, an external CD player that I could plug into into my uh, boombox, you know, and I would play along with a lot of these things too because I was trying to like you know get a feel for what these orchestra excerpts really sounded like. And I realized at the time that I just you know having played through some stuff early on, it's like wow, I just don't understand enough about how the trombone is supposed to fit into these pieces. And the only way I could really figure out how to do that, in addition to playing by myself, was was doing a ton of playing along with the uh, recordings that I had to try to get an idea for what did I want in tone color, what was going on around me, and how can I best simulate that in in an audition. And then I would do like lots of mock auditions. You know, if people were wandering around the UTSA, sometimes there'd be someone else there practicing and I'd just play for them or something like that. It would be, you know, uh, that kind of thing. I went out to uh, Round Top, uh, where Per Brevig was teaching over the summer and played some lessons for Per, you know, in preparation for that audition. And a number of other things, like I just tried to play for as many people as I could. And I think that that was really important. In addition to your individual practice, mock auditions are so essential for any actual successful audition you're going to take. I mean, you can do there's everyone has their own sort of method, you know, about like how you practice excerpts and you can talk about that all day. But one really common thing is that I don't think anyone, no matter what your method is, is going to be successful unless you do a tremendous amount of mock auditions. Because you have to get used to what it's like to be able to deliver under that level of perceived scrutiny. Even for the most confident people, it's still not the most comfortable thing ever to do an audition. You know, so you got to get used to what it's like with someone up there who's like really sort of like picking on every, like where you can imagine that they're going to be picking on every last little thing you do. And for me, when I've done really successful auditions, the mock audition uh, part of it has been much better and many more of them versus when I've not done it, I've always felt less comfortable. And, and playing for other, other instruments outside of the brass family. I remember playing a mock audition once for the flute studio at Juilliard and it was it was the bass Ramones studio playing for them, and Fountains of Rome was on it. And we get we get done playing it, and this one flute player goes, "I assume it's supposed to sound like you can't play it." <laughs> <laughs> and I was That's like, "Awesome!" And all of us were just like, "Oh, so like so dejected, just like oh, horrible." <laughs> you're, you're really you're really depicting the struggle exactly. that was, yeah. he was trying to show. <laughs> It was almost from like the the mouth of babes sort of thing. It's just so <laughs> such an innocent comment that just broke us, you know. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, but seriously, you know, like if you play for people that are outside your instrument group, they don't. They even if it's subconscious, we have an understanding of what another tremonist is doing or another brass player, and we give a little leeway for that. They don't have that built in, just like we don't for their instruments. So I think that, you know they don't have a bias and they don't have a background of like our instrument. So, so they're, they're, they're going to be brutally honest without meaning to be brutal, you know? Yep. So you win the job, just fast forward through an intense audition process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I showed up and I won. I, I hear so many stories. It's funny. Like when you hear people recount like, Oh, I took this audition and I was offered the job. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> make it sound like it was just the, a walk in the park like we're doing right now. But I imagine part of you when you won this job and, and you were there for 12 years, did you think like, oh, this is probably where I'm going to be the rest of my, my career? 
when I first got there, I was very interested like in like, okay, what's the next thing? Like what's going to open up this, that, or the other, you know, just cause I had this sort of this weird, um, we, we built it into our heads that we have this like professional obligation that when a on paper, bigger job opens up that you go take that job because you're supposed to, that's your, that's your other job, you know, is to look for other, is to keep looking for the bigger job. So you got the job you're doing now, but your other job is to get ready for that one that you might happen down the road. I don't know that I ever really thought it was, that's where I was going to be forever, but I know that, you know, I was, I was in a situation where I was quite, quite happy, you know, that there was the life in Atlanta was very good. It was very like, um, for what that orchestra pays versus the cost of living, all those kinds of things. It was really, it was a really nice, uh, situation, but after I got injured, it's, I think for a while I felt like I would just be lucky to be able to even just do that job for the rest of my career you know, to rehabilitate and stay there. I never thought I would take another audition again. In a sense, after that, I wasn't sure I was ever going to make it to the orchestra again. And and when all those things started happening, then I allowed myself to kind of look a little bit farther away. And some of it was personal. My, a lot of my family was, is from this area. The New York Phil is, was an orchestra that I always just loved when I was younger. You know, when I was in Boston, I remember listening to all these Bernstein recordings of like the mid eighties, Mahler uh, two, Mahler three, those kinds of things. And, and for what, and I went to school in New York. So I just, I had this sort of sound affinity for this orchestra, this sort of built in, uh, uh, love of the orchestra from when I was much younger. So when the Philharmonic thing came around and I'd been rec- recovered enough, I was like, yeah, I, I want to see if I can do this. I'm, I'm really, I, this would be a job that I would go to. And then honestly, the, the, that's when the ASO had a management team that was very, um, I think, negative and poisonous for the symphony. We went through the first of our couple, of the two lockouts that happened down there. And that honestly just made me want to leave at that point because I was like, you know what? You know, if this orchestra is going to, to be uh, run in this way, then it's not someplace I want to stay. You know, fortunately, they have a different team now. But at that time, it was really dark. And they took a huge hit out of the orchestra in terms of number of weeks and those kinds of things. It was really an unpleasant experience, and it kind of soured me on the uh, on the place at the time. Was that happening at all, coinciding with dealing with the injury? Um, it was on the. It was years after, I would say. It was years after the injury. Um, during the time of the injury, things were actually going still very well in the in the symphony. So, yeah, that's. I mean, that stuff is so poisonous. It's uh, dealing with labor issues and stuff like that it's yeah i mean I, that's a whole can of worms i don't want to go down it necessarily <laughs> know, it's, oh. it's a it's a it's a yeah because that's a big can of worms in new york right now that's for sure Ugh. yep let's just make this a four-hour podcast let's just get, it all, <laughs> get it all out colin exactly <laughs> i mean yeah and you're being on the committee during this time like you know nick and i have talked about that a lot it's 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 such a cross to bear and it's something you wouldn't wish on anyone but it's like something someone's got to do fall on the sword and a thankless job yeah i've always felt that if you're going to be in an orchestra that you should at some point serve on a committee because it it's i think it's imperative for you to sort of understand at least to a certain degree how the institution functions you know and when you're on the committee you have a much more clear view of that um also i think you should serve because that way you have some understanding of, of of how challenging committee work can be so that you I feel like you could be a little bit more understanding of, of when an orchestra committee is in the middle of, of grind you understand what they're going through and you can try to be there to support them I've, I always felt like that when I was not on the committee and and serving on the committee I just sort of felt like it was, it was an opportunity to try to give something back to my colleagues you know in that most sort of union forward kind of way like you just want to to help as much as you can 
I kind of lost the lottery on this being part of the committee this last time around with COVID coming through town is basically the, I basically rolled a, a zero or I rolled a one like 12 times in a row, apparently, like in order to get all of the missed my saving throws and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. It was incredibly unlucky to have to navigate this crisis. And to be it's like, yeah, I'll volunteer, I'll, I'll volunteer on like a non-negotiating year and like knock out my year or two on the committee and then <laughs> something happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, serving, I served for uh, three terms on New York city ballets committee and what you said about everyone needing to serve or should serve. I, I agree with that a hundred percent because I've gotten so many angry emails or voicemails from colleagues, which first of all, I don't, I don't understand that, but it, a lot of it comes down to not really understanding the language of our contract and not understanding how the relationship with management works. And it's like, Either if you educated yourself on, not you, the general you, uh, educated yourself on the contract and understanding what the process is like, I think a lot of these angry emails would not be written because they're, they're, they're out of line, not, not, not from a social standpoint, but they're out of line because they're, it's like, well, there's nothing I can do about the thing that you're angry about. It's not in the purview of our contract. I don't have that. I don't have that authority, you know? So I think that's a big part of it. It's just like you said, understanding how it works. Yeah. Like I say, you, if I, if we go to, down this road too much longer, it's going to turn into yeah. four hour park, podcast. So yeah, Hey, true. we'd love to hang out with you for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe as far, after as far, our ones with, with Jack Daniels. Oh, involved. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we could have recorded some of those conversations we had at the retreat for sure. <laughs> well, or maybe not all of them. Be. <laughs> <laughs> what, something, something about oh, time sorry. traveling. There's some time traveling conversation. <laughs> oh, I wish on. I could leave that in so much. I wish. Oh my gosh. Wish. Um, uh, there's like f- five people listening to this that will know that reference. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> that's all that needs to know about that. <laughs> oh my God. But creatively speaking, besides the negotiations, do you, it seems like the Philharmonic's been efforting to do some, some things like, I saw some really cool videos like you guys playing with the on the water and some, some things going on. I mean, it's kind of been an opportunity, right? Yeah. I, I think the Philharmonic is we're going through a process right now where we're trying to reimagine how we can be engaged in civic life. You know, we really, it, it, it comes at like the crossroads of a lot of different things. You have the pandemic, you have the uh, social justice movement that's going on and, and this sort of really reevaluating how orchestras like us who for so long have been, you know, uh, these sort of very white monolithic kinds of institutions for most of our history, how do we now engage in a meaningful way with our city, you know, and our, our you know, how do we be uh, good custodians and, and good citizens within the place that we live? And so these bandwagon projects, I think, have come out of this idea. And as we as an institution are looking forward, trying to develop better community partners, we don't want to do these kinds of things where, you know, in the most pejorative kind of way, you could talk about cultural colonialism, where this is very much what orchestras used to do. Be like, here we are, we're our orchestra, we're playing, we're deigning to play in this high school gym. And aren't you lucky to hear some Dvorak? Oh, it's so nice to see you. See you never. And then you take off and that's it. Like you just drop in, drop whatever you're doing into saying it as outreach, as if the community ever asked for you to do that, or was even interested in that in the first place. And then you take off and never come back. I mean, that that is the way that it seems like. I mean, obviously, that's grossly simplified and probably unfair to a lot of institutions. And yet that is the perception that exists for the way that orchestras have operated for a long time in terms of like, how do you engage with people who aren't coming to your concerts? 
what we're trying to do right now is to be like going in, having real conversations and saying, listen, you know, this is, this is what we do. And, and, you know, this is ways that we might be able to help. Is there anything that we can do? Let's do a project together. Are you interested in having us in your community? And if so, then, then what can we do? How can we bring our resources and our skills to amplify your message? You know, how can we help? How can we show that we're part of this community and, and what can we do together to try to create something that's not been done before that could really be something beautiful for the city. And I think that's how we're trying to engage in these kinds of collaborations going forward is is in a very non-traditional way. Like how can we as Philharmonic musicians be part of the city in which we live and in which we perform? And and I think it's it's a way of kind of reimagining what's possible and how orchestras work with you know with the community in, in which they're located. And so I'm hoping that we're um, we were always learning, you know, there, there's uh, clearly we're going to have some some things go wrong, probably one way or the other logistically. But I think that the from what I've seen, all the musicians are, are are super open to it and super flexible. And we're really just trying to make this thing, you know, as meaningful and true and collaborative in the sense of the word, you know, in the true sense of the word, as opposed to the way things maybe have been done in the past. Yeah, it's the New York Philharmonic. It's like what an opportunity to set an example and lead in this type of process, you're in one of the most diverse, fascinating cities on the planet. You have tons of resources and it's, it's, it's so cool that, you know, you guys can set an example for a lot of other groups. Yeah. I I just, I I hope that we can keep going in this direction and, and, and who knows what'll come out of it, but you know, it's, it's, you know, art is made at the, at the crossroads, right. You know, you think about like food, for instance, like where's the greatest food from it's from places that have been like crossroads of cultures and not necessarily monoliths. And I think there's a lot that we as an institution that if we're really open to, to, um, uh, to being part of that cultural exchange, you know, who knows what we'll come out with and what will happen as a result of it. I, I, I remain really uh, optimistic that something really beautiful can, can come from this. So. Awesome. That's awesome. Another thing, another, uh, I guess branch of this is the the renovation of the hall and it's starting early. And, you know, so th- I mean, this is good for you, for you guys to to kind of get a running start at that too. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's funny. Uh, it is, they'd raised all of the money right before the pandemic hit. So they actually had cash in hand <laughs> and looking at it, it was going to be a four year process that they can compact down to two. And so half of it's already gone in terms of, you know, from the pandemic and we couldn't do anything anyway, but they could work. And so David Geffen Hall now, it basically looks like a concrete shell. I mean, everything's been ripped down. There's no balconies. There's no uh, stage. It is literally like a concrete box with like cranes and stuff in it. You know, it's like, it's crazy. So it's, it's happening and we'll get into that space much faster, which I think is going to be really important for the orchestra and it could be really nice as a way to sort of say, hey, you know, New York is back, you know, we're all back and, and check out this new space and it'll post a lot of other things aside from just us. But ultimately, for me, on a personal level, I mean, it's going to be amazing to be in that space, you know, after uh, after it's redone, because the all the designs we've seen look amazing. Yeah, those mock-ups look amazing. Yeah. I, I'm always fascinated with how a space can can shape how an orchestra sounds traditionally, because, you know, there's so many factors, of course, with history with players, with cultural influences, with conductors. But I think a very underappreciated part of how an orchestra forms their sound is their space. And, you know, Avery Fisher, David Geffen, huge space, sometimes not the easiest to hear across the stage. 
you know, the New York Philharmonic has cultivated such a big sound. Um, and sometimes maybe you don't hear that resonance. Maybe you create more sustain, whatever, for whatever reason. Have you thought about how maybe the, the sound of the New York Philharmonic might change with all these new acoustics? Oh, yeah. It's funny. Dave Finless and I were just talking about this the other day, that that our, our suspicion is, is that we're going to have to really dial things back a bit because the hall is getting smaller. They're taking some seats out. They're moving it a little farther forward. We're going to have seating behind the orchestra now. Cool. They're making uh, many more accommodations to make the space much more uh, uh, reverberant and lively. You know, so if all of that comes to pass, I mean, acoustics is like some science and some magic and some luck, right? I mean, so mm-hmm. hopefully it'll land where they want it to land. And if they do, I think the way we play will have to fu- will have to fundamentally shift a bit. I think this sort of like, as you say, the big sound, the huge. Oh, is probably not going to work in that space in the same way. So we may have to make some uh, different equipment choices. We probably will just as a conceptually be able to chill out a little bit in some passages. I mean, there's there's who knows what kind of overtones we're going to want to really generate in that space. And we won't know until we get in there. But I, I think for sure it's going to be a little bit more sent. Like, I don't think we're going to be able to put out the sheer volume, sheer decibels as we as we do now sometimes and have it work in that space. That's my, that's our gut feeling from based on our conversations. And that'll be nice actually, because I think this orchestra has sounded the best when we've been on tour in sort of warmer, more sensitive kinds of spaces. It really can sound incredibly beautiful. And we never get to hear the orchestra like that because we're always in the space that we've been in. Mm. That's exciting to think about. I remember Finless in, in, in lessons, cause I studied with him for a couple of years too. And he was saying how there was one point in the past where the Philharmonic had, an option to set Carnegie Hall as the hall. And he, he just says like, he's just curious how different the Philharmonic would sound if that would, was your main hall. Absolutely. Yeah, it would, it would be a totally different animal, totally different animal. But okay. So Nick, you want me to shoot off the final, some final questions and rapid fire. I've been adding up. <laughs> I've been, we need, we need like a sound effect when we go into rapid oh, fire. I got, I got the one. <laughs> exactly. I got that one. <laughs> But yeah, we, I have just a few questions. I, I've already asked you a lot of them. One, one thing that just a functional nuts and bolts thing that I think could help a lot of young players is, do, do you see something that really contributed to the injury happening that you would recommend as far as the way people play, the way people practice, um, the frequency that people should be a little more wary of to, to hopefully prevent such an injury? Yeah, I mean, I, with the injury, I think it, it was a little bit of, of some bad habits and some bad luck and overuse, you know, like just playing too much all the time. You know, I think be respectful of when you have performances. You like to 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 not try to amp up really hard on the same day or even the day before. That if you know you have a big show that you don't um, uh, overdo it and leave yourself in a weakened position, you know, to, to go play. No athlete is ever going to go like blow it all out in the gym, you know, and then show up and like try to have the on game day, you know, like a, it's like an NFL player is not going to wake up and at five in the morning, like just like trash themselves in the gym and then come in and expect to perform their best or not be more susceptible to injury on game day, I think. And, and I think we, a similar kind of thing can happen for, for uh, a lot of brass players, you know, uh, be mindful of your practice, like have practice with intention. Don't just practice for hours. Don't practice for minutes. Like I would do sometimes I would be like, Oh, I've only practiced two hours today. I need to get another two in before I can go, warm up for my 45 minutes before I have play pictures at an exhibition or some stupid thing like I used to do, Ooh. you know, um, it, it's like that kind of mentality is no good. So, so being uh, practicing thoughtfully and with intention and with goals, I think is really important. That would have kept me out of a lot of trouble. I think. You ever think about why you wanted to practice so much? I mean, did, 
obviously you loved it, but did you think any part of it was tied to anxiety or feeling like imposter syndrome? Like you need to be playing this much or you're not yourself? Yeah, I think I think so. There was some part of it that, like, when I was practicing, at least I had uh, uh, more control over what was going on at that given moment. And then also, I wanted to get better and better and better and better. For what I wasn't sure yet, <laughs> and I think maybe having that in mind would have been better. Uh, but you know, just to prove that I was awesome or something, I don't know. It was something very childish and very, uh, very stupid that that was. That's not a good way to go about doing it, for sure. Did you not, how often did you, like, tell yourself, like, hey, you're doing pretty good here. Like, hey, you're principal of the Atlanta Symphony. That's pretty awesome. It was always like, it was always like yeah, you've got this job, but mm. you could do this or that. Or it was like, you know, oh, yeah, you got this thing. Any, any, you know, like, it would basically completely devalue or be dismissive of the of the job that I had. Not because it wasn't a great job, but because there was a part of me that wanted to diminish or or devalue, didn't want to give credit or recognition to to my own accomplishments, so that I would basically be in that position. It's like, oh yeah, you got this job, like no big deal. Any idiot can walk off the street and do this, you know. But you should be doing that, or you should be doing that, mm-hmm. or like no, you should be getting a call for that, or you should have gotten called for that, and it didn't happen because you're not good enough. So you better practice some more. That was sort of like that very negative self-destructive kind of headspace i think i used to live in and you see so many of the most successful people kind of have had that mindset because it's like they've had something even though it's maybe not the most positive constructive thing but there there's something to push against or there's something that's always fueling you which is like you know it's helping me get to this place but like am i enjoying this place so it's i don't know it it's so it's so funny because i i remember I, I had this like bootleg, I think I may have mentioned this to you at the retreat. I had this bootleg video of you to playing a mock audition when I was in undergrad. So it had to be like shortly after you won the Atlanta position. And I would listen to that thing like every day or watch it every day and just be like, holy crap, I have to get my, my excerpts sounding like this. And it would just be like my model. And at the same time, you're like beating yourself up, you know? Yeah, it's, 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 so, it's funny how that is. You know, you're, you're a sports psychology guy, so I'm going to throw a dated reference out there. But, you know, I always think of a little bit about like John McEnroe, someone who was fueled by like anger and like very negative kind of things. And sometimes I wonder, like, what could he have achieved if his motivation was from a slightly more positive, empowering, as opposed to this exhausting kind of way, this anger, negative kind of motivation? Because you can get a lot of motivation. You can get better on this, but eventually it will fail you, I think. I think no one has gone through life on anger alone and and by the time they get to retirement can look back and say they enjoyed or had a great career they just will have gotten through it and you're still left just as angry and uh unfulfilled at the end as you were at the beginning mm-hmm. so if you can recognize that this is a thing that's happening then then it's a good time for you to sort of step back and really try to suss out what some more positive ways to motivate yourself might be absolutely yeah and you're expending so much energy yes. <laughs> doing that it's exhausting it makes me think about Roger Federer because apparently he was a huge hothead. Yeah. Just so angry all the time and, and had talent, but just couldn't like channel it. And then a coach came along and really got him to be so Zen. And we just see him as this like guy who shows no emotion, but really he's just channeling all of that energy into like strategy and everything, which I think is amazing, but not easy to pull off. Okay. So next question. Thank you for that thoughtful answer. Advice to your 18 year old self. Oh God. Um, maybe lay off the beer. <laughs> um, uh, that doesn't just, appear. Like, come on. 
Yes, <laughs> I know. But but the the uh, I I think for me it would be to go see more concerts while you're in New York. I spent so much time in the practice room and doing all those things. I didn't see nearly enough of the city or the cultural things. And if I had gone to more concerts and gone to more museums and really taken advantage of the, all the time that I had as an 18 to 22 year old in school to go do these things, rather than just squeezing out another 30 to 40 minutes of practice during a weekend or something like that, I think it would have been better, better served. I would have been a more complete kind of person to really take advantage of that experience and that freedom you have to really better yourself on more than just the trombone, you know? So that was, that's the thing that when I look back at my time in New York, the thing that I feel that I did not take nearly enough advantage of was all the stuff around me. I didn't, I didn't go to enough jazz concerts. I didn't practice or listen to jazz enough. I didn't like, you know, get into that and try to understand that art form. I didn't go to nearly enough Philharmonic. I didn't go to like any metropolitan operas, you know, or I didn't see any of the ballets. I didn't enrich myself in that way when I had the time. And now it's much harder to do it because I'm performing. You know, so it's it's a little bit of a regret. I wish I had seen much more of it and gotten myself that experience and done more listening live than I did when I was in school. And I, and that's that part of your education. It cannot be uh, overestimated as to how valuable it is. So, do you have a do you have a musical experience that you look back on that was the most impactful or, or memorable to you? I can I can have one where it was sort of, it should have been a more of a wake up call than it was, but in in San Antonio. We did a chamber concert and I played uh, Blue Bells of Scotland on it. I remember afterwards, I was like, oh, it just wasn't so clean and blah, blah, blah. You know, I didn't, I, I, I chickened out and go for the high F at the end. It was lame. You suck, blah, blah, blah. And this older gentleman came up to me and he had tears in his eyes. And he's like, I just want to say thank you so much. My father was a trombonist and we used to listen to, to Arthur Pryor from his recordings with John Philip Sousa. And he actually used to practice this piece from time to time. You know, and like with you playing it and, and me hearing it again, uh, it just brought me back to my childhood. And I just I, I haven't thought about my father like this in so long. And just thank you. And I'm like, this is like an 85 year old guy, you know, with tears in his eyes. It's like, wow, boy, did I miss the boat on what's going on in this room? You know, <laughs> and then he was like, but why didn't you play the high F? Yeah. And it's like, and, and <laughs> but, you know, now that I think about it. That F, man. You know what? Actually, this really <laughs> sullies the whole memory of my dad. And honestly, I'm pretty disappointed in you. Exactly. No, I mean, so so it's, that was one of those things is that that as a performer, even though you have all this inner dialogue, you can't possibly know what you're bringing to someone else. And if you just do it earnestly and try really hard, you're probably going to reach someone in a way that you can't even imagine. No, well, I like that. Okay. So this is a question that I like to ask all of our guests. What is something that young students should do more of when they're in school? Listen. I am shocked at like when I talk about pieces or, or orchestral, you know, pieces that they're even supposed to be playing, like how few, how little they know of the piece that they're playing, you know, like how little the context, can they even sing the part that comes right before this or afterwards, you know? Yeah. I'm shocked at, at how little uh, the, some young students really have taken the time to really go out there and hear you know, great recordings and great other musical experiences, like just what else is out there. And also, for those who are listening in the orchestral world, expand out a little bit. Listen to other genres of music so that you can borrow some of the music making. Because like listening to 
Like if you're not listening, not only to the pieces that you're supposed to be performing for excerpts, but if you're not going out and listening to other genres of music that you can then borrow ideas from, you're totally missing out on a huge amount of information. Sometimes we get so myopic on listening to this trombone recording, this trombone recording, this trombone recording, that we don't open up our ears to the great opera singers, to the great pop singers, to the great, you know, like listen to like Freddie Mercury and like how he like spins a phrase or spins a sound. Listen to like how Frank Sinatra does something, you know, listen to how Christine Gerke does something. Those those are uh, all things that that we could learn from that we if we don't spend the time really listening and getting into it and get too myopic, then you'll miss out on. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I by the way, I highly recommend everyone hear Colin's solo CD Ash recently came out. I, I spent some time listening to the whole thing today. I really, really enjoyed it. Really oh, thanks, amazing man. stuff. Thank you. Dude, it's always so easy to talk to you and it's it's always a, a joy. And I think we'll we'll see you down at the, the ITF. Yeah, I'll be there. We'll be there. Awesome. Yeah. We might share a beer. <laughs> Maybe. I don't share, by the way. <laughs> we'll get three straws. <laughs> like Lady in the Train. Sure. Um. <laughs> Is it weird to say that I want to be a Colin Williams when I grow up? A Colin Williams? Yep. I don't think that's weird. Well, then I'm going to say it. I want to be a Colin Williams when I grow up. I think there could be much worse people to be. That is true. Like a Sebastian Vera. (laughs) (sighs) Man. Self-esteem meter just like took a nosedive right there. That was mean. I apologize. That's nothing that a Colin Williams would do. Rosie Alexander, my mom, is is not going to be pleased with that comment. Well, she she likes me enough that I think our relationship can stand the blow, you know? Yeah, she's actually visiting me in a couple days. I know. You're going to get showered with mom hugs and clean laundry, I assume. <laughs> yeah, just like college. It's yeah, just, like, got- just like college. She's going to bring a tray of tamales or something like that to feed you. Oh, wow. That'd be cool. That would be awesome. Yeah, my my house is definitely going to be the most clean it's ever been when she shows up. So It was pretty good looking when I was there last week. I got to say, it's looking pretty handsome. I appreciate that for a single guy living in a big house. Like, you know, it takes a lot of work, but it's not perfect, but I keep it presentable. I was most impressed with, uh, let's call it a shrine to your Peloton. Very, very polished area. Have we talked about the Peloton? On it's the been a while since we mentioned that you have a Peloton, which that's the first step of, of being a Peloton owner is telling everybody about it. Honestly, I think you bring up the Peloton way more than I do for the mm. record. Well, you know, I could I could out some other people that have a Peloton. Here's looking at you, Weston Sprott. Weston Sprott, Jeremy Muller's got Jer- one. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Buckler has one. Right, right. Um, I mean, honestly, it's been great for me. If anyone listening is on Peloton, follow me. I'm Rib Knight is my name. Rib Knight. Knights like Knights of the Round Table. This outro is sponsored by Peloton. Oh, man. If we could get Peloton to sponsor us. They're having a pretty big PR hit right now, so. Hey, oh, they'll be fine. If you have a Peloton treadmill, don't put your baby under it. All I'm saying is buy that stock while it's low. Going straight to the moon. Like Warren Buffett told me at a Long John Silver's once, <laughs> buy low, sell high. Warren Buffett is the type of guy that would like, I think, doesn't he still eat at McDonald's? His, his wife puts aside the exact amount of money for his breakfast every morning, which is, I think, a, a Coca-Cola. And an Egg McMuffin at McDonald's. Dream big, Warren. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 
I don't know how I feel about that. It's like, it's kind of trolling me. Like, I'm getting the same breakfast. Like, okay, yeah, look at you. Good for you. <laughs> he's a cheapskate, that's for sure. But, I mean, he's actually incredible when you yeah. read, read his philosophies and everything. All right, well, I, I mean, I always love hanging out with Colin. And uh, I, I think we got kind of deep there. And I, I, I really enjoyed it, talking about identity. And I think it's important for all of us. You know, it's it's easy to be consumed by what you do especially if you've found success and ultimately that's finite you know because it can be taken away or you know it's taken away this year for different Mm -hmm. kind of reasons i'm kidding so really like learning who you are and that can that's a lifelong pursuit i think i think we're all trying to like always find deeper levels of that but is always a good thing yeah and then there's always like those revelations that happen in small little bits over time. And then there's huge events that make you face yourself and it happens more at once. And those are obviously more jarring, but either way, it's important. We, we are always finding ourselves. I thought I was going to be a veterinarian when I was a little kid. Really? Yep. You never told me that. I love animals. You got the beard for it. Veterinarians have beards. I just feel like if I had a cat that was not feeling well, uh, seeing you, I would just feel like, you know, my cat's in good hands. You know, I think I think the thing that I wouldn't be able to do very well as a veterinarian is when you have to express their backside glands. If you're a dog owner, you know what I'm talking about. That's gross. Have you had to do that? Wow, we pay someone to do it. It's pretty gnarly. <laughs> Imagine that that being your job, like you're a specialist. I know Kyle, <laughs> Kyle Covington, who's, who's principal Tremont of San Diego, he told me this is a couple months ago. He was doing that for his dog and it exploded all over him, his clothes and face and everything. And he just jumped in the shower and started crying. <laughs> I don't, actually, I can't remember the crying part, but that's, I, I believe he did start crying. It's weird. I can hear everyone turning our podcast off right now. Exactly. So, all right. We're going to get away from uh, backside fluids. Oh my god. That sounds like the worst band name ever. Yeah. One thing Kong got me thinking about a little bit was, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but just I think something that a lot of people can maybe identify with, especially now, is getting back into shape. Uh especially if, you know, you're getting out of school and you're and you're coming into the summer or you know, you haven't been working as much as as normal. And I feel like this is one area where I feel very confident about my experience <laughs> in this area as far as coming back from taking breaks as someone who grew up tending towards the lazy side at moments, but always needing to get back in shape quickly. I had a lot of experience doing this and, and I've come up with a lot of opinions on the way that I'd like to share with you. And these, this is just how I feel about it. And it's worked for me. Everybody crisscross applesauce. Uncle Sebby's telling a story. You ever do the thing with little kids? No. And then they clap it back. Oh, that's every kid under the age of six knows that if you just do that around them, they'll do it. So, yeah, I think the biggest thing to understand is I think the problem that most people have is trying to come back too fast. And this is this is the same as if you're working out or or anything. It's always going to feel good on the first day back, even if you've taken a decent amount of time off. The first day is always going to feel kind of the best because, you know, your muscles haven't been worked. And I'm sure a lot of people experience like, man, I sound pretty damn good. But it's the second day that sucks. 
you know, so you, you, you feel really good and you end up doing too much and then your muscles don't have the endurance to recover. And so they're really broken down. It's going to take a longer time. So the second day is awful. So you're like, if you try to cram in like a really heavy day, first day back for like a gig you have the next day, it's probably not going to feel awesome. The most important thing to do is don't do too much. So play, think about not pushing the range or the dynamics as much as you want to maybe touch those areas, but think about sustained things. You know, you're talking long tone scales, all the simple stuff, lip slurs, feeling good, getting the blood moving, getting the muscle building again. And then just slowly over time, expanding that, expanding your age, expanding the dynamics, expanding the variable of how long you play and be consistent with it. Yep. And it's way better to do like, you know, 10, 15 minutes every day than like one day where you're doing a ton than skipping a lot when you're trying to get back in shape. The best practice session today is the one that you can continue doing tomorrow. The more you know. <laughs> exactly. Well, pivoting slightly, but still on the topic of, of Colin. I was telling you this, that, you know, he talked about himself being damaged goods or feeling like damaged goods. And, you know, I just, I don't see it that way. I mean, sure, of course, his feelings and experiences are valid. But one thing I've noticed over the years is how many colleagues want to play for Colin to, to understand how he went through what he went through and came back so strong. And to me, that's pretty much the opposite of damaged goods. It's more like, how did you do that? You're, you're like, you have a super, superhuman power. So Colin, you're not damaged. We love you just the way you are. Does, I mean, does he really think he's damaged or was he just talking about like, he's afraid that that might be a perception? I think it's more of a fear than it is a, a reality, you know? So yeah. I'm just here trying to debunk that fear. Yeah. And if anyone for any reason thinks that, go listen to his CD Ash and you will quickly be reminded <laughs> yeah. what he's capable of. Here's another example of Colin being just superhuman. Like we do at the retreat, we usually have you know, long days and then late nights. A lot of the reason is some of our guest artists come in and they're here for a limited amount of time. So we want to maximize the time with them. We'll sometimes go out and um, have dinner slash drinks at the local, local tavern here. But we have a late night one night, maybe one thirty in the morning or something like that. And Colin packed in a lot of extra lessons. So he had a lesson, something like seven thirty in the morning, which even on a full night of sleep is crazy. And this student came in and they're working on also Sprock <laughs> and uh, at seven thirty in the morning. Yeah. And Ugh. the student's just not quite getting what Colin's saying. And so the student says, can you, can you just play it for me? And apparently Colin just goes, okay, let's do it. And then nailed it to the wall, of course. But I, th I think that's incredible. I mean, that's hard to play, you know, at three in the afternoon when you're fully fresh let alone 7.30 in the morning, underslept, you know? <laughs> it's funny because it always turns into, we just have a good time. And a lot of these people we haven't seen in a long time. And everyone's usually really busy. And so, we, you know, we pack and we work really hard and, and we have a good time too. We go on the boat. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great places to eat, a lot of great people to see. And I think Colin, you know, he had, he'd been coming off a busy stretch, you know, and, you know, as kids at home. And I think... Initially, he was like, you know, I'm just going to keep my head down and go to bed early every night. <laughs> the <laughs> retreat had change. other plans for him. <laughs> <laughs> we had a very awesome time. 
I just wanted to read this super sweet review we got from TDY41. I guess that's Teddy. And I don't know. It's these, you know, especially on rough days, Nick and I are just saving these. It really inspires us to, to work and keep creating these things for you guys. But he wrote a review and then he wrote an update. He said, I just discovered this podcast a few days ago. I started off at the beginning and up to the fourth episode. Wow, I am so inspired. Thank you, guys. Update. I am at Nick's interview, and everything so far is absolutely fantastic. This podcast gets better with every episode. You guys have nailed it. I'm an amateur in my 60s. Good for you. That is learning so much from you guys. Wow. Obviously, that feels really good to read, but it's so great to... We we talk to people that are professionals. We talk to people that are students. We talk to people that are young students and amateurs, and that's what we want this to be, um, a resource for everybody. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we got we we got another message, uh, both of us, who said that he could write a thousand word essay about how great the Trombone Retreat podcast is. I don't think I could write a, a thousand word essay about anything. So is that is that double spaced or single spaced? I think we're looking at one point two space. Oh wait, that doesn't matter because it's a thousand words. Yeah, see, that's how good we are at essays. <laughs> <laughs> as as a college professor, sometimes like when you get essays, like you see all the same tricks that you did. As a college student, like everyone knows the the courier new font trick. Well, and also you, know you, you can you can write just gibberish at the bottom of the page in white so you can't see it and it adds uh word to the word count. I've never tried that. Don't try That's that, kids. I'm, I'm just joking. It, it, but it, oh man. <laughs> How to be lazy in school by Nick Schwartz. <laughs> everyone ignore everything we just suggested. Exactly. Times New Roman all the way. <laughs> if you enjoyed the podcast please consider leaving us a rating and review on itunes if you want to leave a question or topic you'd like us to discuss we may answer it on the podcast follow us at trombone retreat on the facebook's the instagrams the youtubes the twitters and our website tromboneretreat.com where you can also join our mailing list also stay tuned for updates about the upcoming trombone retreat coming up in august and feel free to shoot us an email at tromboneretreat at gmail.com as we love hearing from you. On Instagram, follow Nick at basstrombone444 and myself at js.vera. Also, stay tuned for practice hangs as, as we plan to do our online Zoom hangs again and get back in shape with us. And if you're feeling down, plant some lilies. Write your mom a handwritten letter. Go ahead and retreat yourself. <laughs>